When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Athletic Fantasy Football Podcast. This is another episode in our Beat Writer Roundtable series. This episode covering the AFC East. I am Michael Beller. In the AFC East for years and years, for decades almost, we always would start with the New England Patriots, but that is no longer the case. There is a new team in town atop this division. It is the Buffalo Bills going to the AFC Championship game a year ago. To talk Bills, we bring on Tim Graham. Tim is a senior writer here at The Athletic based in Buffalo. Tim, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It feels good to be on a show uh, talking some some Bills, some fantasy football. That means uh, the season's right around the corner. Yeah, thank you very much for joining us. I got to put this out there for just so everyone knows the dedication of our beat writers here at The Athletic. We actually have two Bills beat writers, Joe Buscalia and Matt Fairbairn. One of them got married this summer. The other one had a baby this summer. These guys are timing their life events to the NFL offseason so they can be there for you during the season. Tim, thank you very much for pinch hitting for those guys. Let's start right at the top. Josh Allen, a breakout season last year, an MVP candidate without question this season. We know basically what to expect from him and Stephon Diggs in this offense. But is there any new wrinkles, any new wrinkles for Josh Allen that we could be looking at potentially this year? Well, for sure. Uh, you know, Brian Dable, the offensive coordinator, is back too. So you'd like to think that it will be that pass happy offense that we saw last year, where sometimes you'd get to halftime and the Bills have run the ball three times, uh, something outrageous like that. Uh, but there was an emphasis, at least from general manager Brandon Bean and the head coach Sean McDermott, to say we need to run the ball more effectively. We need to do it better. So that puts a little bit of a spotlight on Zach Moss, Devin Singletary. Um, of course, they got into trouble last year. They're, each of them ended up in the doghouse for various reasons last season uh, with Sean McDermott, where they'd get uh, put on the sidelines for a while. And they go out and they sign Matt Breda. And uh, it's um, it'll be interesting to see how that backfield shakes out in terms of the touches. And I think the other, probably the bigger question mark, though, is at tight end. Uh, Dawson Knox is uh, the clear-cut starter right now, but Tommy Sweeney missed all of last season with that uh, COVID-related heart issue. Uh, they signed Jacob Hollister. Uh, there's an undrafted rookie named Quentin Morris who people are high on at One Bills Drive. Um, and the thing that's interesting about the Bills when it comes to tight ends, if you take a look at their production, especially if you're considering it from a fantasy standpoint, they're not going to give you that steady reception receiving yardage uh, production, but they catch a lot of touchdown passes, which means they're popular targets in the red zone. You know, Lee Smith had a couple of touchdowns last year. Tyler Croft had three touchdowns last year. Dawson Knox had three touchdowns last year. Reggie Gilliam had a couple. Um, I'm sorry, he had one. Um, and so they do like to go to their tight ends when it matters. Uh, so that's another thing to kind of keep in mind. Uh, it's definitely one of the few positions where the Bills really needed to upgrade um, from an overall offensive schematic standpoint because they're so loaded. You know, you talk about Stephon Diggs. Um, Gabriel Davis, as a rookie last year, uh, stepped in there and did really well uh, at moments. Uh, Cole Beasley, of course, is, uh, you know, huge, uh, you know, with his seven, eight, nine catches a game. Uh, for 85 yards or whatever it is, um, Isaiah McKenzie. They get production, and um, it's. Uh, I think that this is a loaded offense, but when you ask about wrinkles, I think it's running back and tight end are the big uh, question marks right now as to uh, 
uh, as to what they'll look like uh, as this offense evolves. And every every team does need to evolve its offense. The Bills can't afford to go into this season with its young quarterback, even though, like you said, Josh Allen, a legitimate, uh, legitimately in the conversation for MVP, from a preseason standpoint anyway. I mean, he's that good. Um, the Bills are going to want to start to protect him more as an asset in terms of running the ball. I mean, does he take off and run as much? Does he at some point become under orders uh, to stick in the pocket a little more so he doesn't take as much abuse with tackles uh, because he's a guy who's really hesitant to slide or, or step out of bounds. So that's something that the coaching staff has long been mindful of. So how does this offense evolve is really uh, what is going to be fascinating to, to see because so much of the rest of it is intact. But this is the NFL, and you can't just assume that what happened last year is going to happen again. Yeah, let's take a look at that backfield because I think that's really where there maybe is some advantage, some edges to be played in the fantasy world. We basically know what to get. we're going to get out of Josh Allen. We basically know what we're going to get out of Steph Diggs. I'll ask you about a few of the other receivers in a bit here, but the backfield is maybe where there's an edge to be played. Last year on a per-game basis, you basically saw Devin Singletary and Zach Moss split things down the middle in terms of usage. 156 carries in 16 games for Devin Singletary, 112 carries in 13 games for Zach Moss. Matt Breida, I think, steps in as a clear change of pace, pass-catching speed guy in this offense. Moss, Singletary, not really speed guys the way that Breida can be. Is there a way that either of these running backs in Moss and Singletary can jockey themselves ahead of the other one and be the primary runner for this team? Or are we looking at, once again, something on the order of a relatively even split between the two? Okay, so Sean McDermott would have you believe that there's no such thing as a lead running back in this Bills offense. And he's been asked about it ever since Devin Singletary was drafted and Frank Gore was still on the roster uh, when they had LaShawn McCoy. Obviously, LaShawn McCoy was the alpha male, but he was nearing the end of his career. He had a lot of mileage. And so when they drafted Devin Singletary two years ago and then Zach Moss last year, you could see that they're starting to restock this, this backfield. Um, but I do think that the Bills would love for one of those guys to emerge and take that job by the throat, but neither has done it. Devin Singletary, uh, you know, he was benched. Uh, in the uh, playoffs because he dropped a, a critical pass uh, that he that should have been a first down uh, forced the bills to punt and so Sean McDermott sticks him on the sidelines and and um, uh, and in, in a critical game I mean most important game of the season right against the Kansas City Chiefs AFC championship game and all of a sudden the bills are down to uh, you know their third running back because they can't trust Devin Singletary and earlier in the season Zach Moss was benched for fumbling uh, near the goal line. Uh, the fumble was actually charged to Josh Allen. It was an aborted play, but the, the, miscue was, um, the miscue was Zach Moss's. So Sean McDermott has been quick to yank the leash on these guys. Uh, and I think that if either of them can play some error-free football uh, and stay healthy, because that's also a consideration with Zach Moss, so even going back to his college days, um, then you're you're looking at a guy who the Bills would be more than happy uh, to make uh, their feature back. They would be loath to admit that that's what the guy really is. Uh, but this is, I think, a classic hot hand situation. I, I don't think the Bills enter this season thinking we are going to go 50-50 uh, Moss Singletary uh, or whatever, 33% uh, Singletary Moss Breda, whatever it's going to be. I think they would love to see a guy uh, just step up and do it. And that is of zero help to fantasy football owners, <laughs> probably until week four, right? You know, or whenever yeah. it's going to be when this thing starts to shake out. Uh, yeah, that, this is the thing that, um, you know, that, uh, that you're going you're gonna to be scratching your head about. You're going to maybe start Moss one week and he doesn't do anything. And then you start him uh, and then you put him on the bench and he goes for, you know, 80 yards uh, and, and a touchdown. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, the one thing, though, that this does tell us is that, you know, we, we know this is going to be an explosive offense again this season, one that you wouldn't find minding some sort of investment in, and it's 
you know, much easier said than done to get Josh Allen, much easier said than done to get Stephon Diggs. The running backs, they're all affordable. You can target really any of them and come out with one. Hope you've got the right guy. Let's get to that big receiver. Stephon Diggs just absolutely exploded last season. 127 catches, 1,535 yards, eight touchdowns, a monster year. Look, we, we can't be out here saying he's going to find another statistical gear and go for like 140 and 1712. That would be ridiculous. We're not going to expect him to be, you know, Randy Moss or Jerry Rice. But can he just maintain the level he had last year? Can we expect or can we hope for realistically another, I don't know, 110 catch, 1400 yard, eight touchdown type of season? Well, that's hard. That's hard to do. Yes. Um <laughs> And, and and one of the reasons why I'm hesitant to just go ahead and say, hey, why not? He, first off, he is that good. It, it, if he does slip in terms of production, my prediction is it will not be his fault. It will be because of the things going around him in the offense. Maybe some things change. There are some, like we're talking about, wrinkles. Maybe they run the ball just that much more that it cuts into his touches. Cole Beasley really was banged up towards the end of last season, and he's getting up there in age. I mean, if Cole Beasley is not on the field for a couple of games or if he needs to come off for a series or he just is not as effective, uh, then that is going to affect Stephon Diggs. John Brown is gone, you know, stretching the field type of guy, one more dangerous threat to cover. Now, he obviously had injuries last year, too, and wasn't uh, on the field for, for every game. Stephon Diggs had big games without John Brown on the field, too, but not having him to prepare for uh, at, from a defensive standpoint maybe means a tougher go for Stephon Diggs. Emmanuel Sanders, we don't know what he's going to be. New acquisition there at wide receiver. So this is one of those deal. This is like the Rubik's Cube answer where you change a couple of key things and it could really impact Stephon Diggs' numbers. Um, but it's not going to be because what we saw last year was any kind of fluke or anything like that. He is elite. He is that good. He is marvelous, um, but there are those just those moving parts that I think are going to be um, interesting to see how how it affects you know the ripple effect of that offense if if there's injuries uh, or um, diminished skills. Stephon Diggs is an elite top five receiver in the NFL, real life fantasy. No one would question that. Uh, Cole Beasley, very useful real life piece. We basically know what to expect from him. Very low ceiling, but a relatively comfortable floor in the fantasy world. Emmanuel Sanders, whatever the Bills get out of him, unlikely to be fantasy relevant. Maybe he matters for the Bills in real life, but probably not going to show up for us in a meaningful way in our fantasy game. The one guy in this receiving group who is an unknown and an exciting type of unknown for us is Gabriel Davis. 599 yards and seven touchdowns on 35 catches and 62 targets in his rookie season. How excited can we be about this guy in the fantasy world? That is a really good later round pick um, because of all the things you just said. You know, and it even hits me when you – I know it because I, I look at the stats all the time. I wrote it. But when you say 35 catches, seven of them are touchdowns, that just goes to show you that as a rookie – there was no fear in the Bills offense or Josh Allen, you know, I'm talking about the offense, I'm talking about the play caller, Brian Dable, to go to him in clutch situations. Um, toe tapping on the sideline for a huge third and long pickup. Um, touchdowns late in games. Finding ways to bust a coverage. Um, the, the thing that was really impressive about Gabriel Davis last season is that the Bills were able to use him in all of the different receiver slots. It wasn't as though he, as a rookie, went to practice and learned his one thing to do on any given play. He was a plug-and-play receiver, and that versatility allows him to be out there and to fill in for anybody. Uh, and, of course, that's how he got on the field mostly as a rookie, um, especially in John Brown's absence. Uh, and then now he's a guy that they are now designing uh, things to to do and to use. So um, – I would expect this based on my eyes, not just based on any kind of inside knowledge, but how good he was last year, how versatile and how reliable he was. Those are the innate things that you know that this guy is going to get the ball. They're going to find ways to get Gabriel Davis the ball. Is it going to be a ton? Maybe not, but key situations. And um, so, like I said at the beginning, later round fantasy draft pick, I think, uh, well, hell, 
depending on how your draft goes, go ahead and take him in the mid rounds. I don't know. Uh, but um, it's uh, he's a fun player to consider. Yeah, he definitely is. And another fun way to be invested in this team in this passing game, which is where you really want to be invested in the Buffalo Bills. Let's wrap things up here, Tim. This team went 13-3 and a year ago. They went to the AFC Championship game. High expectations, as there should be, surrounding this team this season. Our partners over at BetMGM have their win total over-under set at 11. What do you got here, over or under that number? You know, I am... <laughs> I'm indoctrinated with seven and a half being the number for about 20 years <laughs> yeah. uh, to hear an 11, although last year I think it was 10, uh, to hear an 11. Okay, Bills fans are going to be paying attention to this podcast more than uh, any other fan base, so this is where I'm going to hear it from. I'm going to take the under, Ooh. but I do think the Bills win the division. Oh, wait, there's 17 games, though. See, now I always forget that. I'm still getting <laughs> used to that concept. Yeah. It, it would be cheating if I said they end up on the number. Uh, I am going to say, oh hell, twelve, yeah, twelve and five. Okay, I can I can get there. I can get. We talked through five. it all and get land the on the over after all that. I didn't expect you to ask me that question. So yeah, it was a it was a pretty circular way for me to get. I had to talk myself into it. But that extra game, I was pretty I was pretty calm at ten. I was I was okay with ten. And then if I give them an extra win, that's 11. That's cheating if I pick the number. See, this is why Vegas knows what it's doing. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. It's why there's all those uh, billion-dollar casinos out there in the middle of nowhere in the desert. They, they're they pretty good. They're pretty good at their job. Josh Allen and crew in uh, Buffalo. Brian Dable, very happy he stayed there for one more year. Very good at their job. Tim Graham, very good at your job as well. Catch all of Tim's stuff on the Athletic Senior Writer based in Buffalo. Tim, thanks again for being with us on the Fantasy Football Podcast. Anytime, Michael. It was my pleasure. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Moving right along here on our AFC East edition of the Athletic Fantasy Football Podcast, Beat Writer Roundtable. And hey, you see Robert Mays here. Robert Mays, not a beat writer, but stepping in on the Miami Dolphins for us. Robert, thanks for taking the time to be with us on the Fantasy Football Pod. Happy to do it. Happy to be a, a Dolphin-centric thinker here for the next 15 minutes or so. Hey, man, this is going to be, I think, a pretty fun team to be a centric thinker on for both real life and fantasy purposes. Obviously, for our context here, we're a little bit more concerned with the fantasy purposes. This team went out and did a lot to surround Tua Tungavailoa with some weapons. They signed Will Fuller. They draft Jalen Waddle. Of course, it all comes back to the quarterback, Tua Tungavailoa, entering this year as the unquestioned starter in Miami. What do you think the most important thing for him is that signals he's taken a step forward? He could take advantage of all the weapons this team's put around him. I, I think it's him being comfortable pushing the ball down the field. I think he had 10 completions last year on passes of 20 or more air yards. And if you look at not only the offensive line changes that they made, they drafted Liam Eikenberg. They're clearly trying to finish off that unit after spending a lot of resources on it in 2020. They had multiple draft picks at that spot. They also went out and signed Matt Skura in free agency. So they're still tinkering with that group and trying to figure out, all right, can we get five, five functional starters? Can this be an above average group to keep in front of him? And then on top of that, all the speed. Going out and getting Will Fuller and Jalen Waddle is a declaration of intent. That is a, we know what we need to get offensively. We know the aspect of our team that we didn't have last year that needs to improve. So I think if you see him coming out and pushing the ball down the field, not only is that the best way to get the most out of the receivers that they brought in this offseason, but I think it's a sign I'm more confident. Because when you watched them last year, it looked like two different offenses with Ryan Fitzpatrick and Tua in the, in the lineup. Ryan Fitzpatrick clearly willing to push the ball down the field. It's him, his MO at this point. And Tua just playing a little bit skittish, playing a little bit gun-shy, if we're being fair. And I think not seeing that aspect to his game anymore will be a sign that he has taken a step forward and the step they need him to take. 
you mentioned they've got all the right parts around him in terms of shoring up the offensive line and adding those receivers in Fuller and Waddle. Of course, there's some holdovers on this team, too. We still have Devontae Parker on this roster. We still have Preston Williams on this Parker, Mike Gesicki also at the tight end position. When you look at really what we think are going to be those top three receivers, Fuller, Waddle, and Parker, no offense to Preston Williams, how do these three guys balance one another out? I think it's a combination that is complementary, right? You know, Will Fuller, we saw, can step into a role that's not just speed-based. He had his lowest, lowest average depth of target of his career last year, but that coincided with him being a, num- a true number one receiver, both in real life and fantasy, until he was suspended last season. So I think that is a promising sign because that allows you to just use Jalen Waddell as your speed option in year one. Obviously, when you draft a guy in the top 10, at receiver, you want him to be more than just a complimentary speed piece, but they can bring him along whatever pace they want to now, because if Fuller and Parker are your true outside options that can start the season for you, Waddle can just be a movable piece that becomes an ingredient in your offense, and I love that, because it's almost what Will Fuller was early (laughs) in his career, because DeAndre Hopkins was there, so they didn't have to ask so much of him, and I just think that when you have Will Fuller who can be a real number one or number two option. We've seen him do that. It allows you to play into Waddle's development in a way that's probably conducive to his success. Yeah, it's going to be, I think, a really, really fun fantasy offense when you look at what they've put around Tua and hoping that step forward does indeed happen for Tua. And you're seeing it reflected with where Will Fuller and Jalen Waddle are both being selected in fantasy drafts. No one really challenging you for them, but they're both going to be taken 100% across the board. Last year, if there was one revelation for the offense, it was in the backfield with Miles Gaskin and really putting together a strong season for the team. The numbers don't jump out as much as we remember him uh, being a jump out sort of player because he didn't really get a chance to be the guy for them in the backfield in the second half of the season. Once he was the guy, though, he was a very effective player for this team, both in real life, very effective for us in the fantasy world. And then the team goes out, and the biggest move that they make in the offseason in the backfield is with Malcolm Brown, who's a nice enough player, but doesn't seem like someone who's going to challenge Gaskin for too many touches. So does this feel like an all-systems-go sort of season to you for Miles Gaskin? It kind of does. I mean, this is a team that I think there were people mocking them or running back as high as the first round coming into the draft. That obviously didn't happen. They didn't take a running back until the seventh round. So you really have not a ton of block or blockages to work. I mean, there aren't a lot of blockades or barriers to Miles Gaskin being the guy in this offense. And if you look at where he might be drafted compared to other running backs, that workload is higher than some of the guys you're going to need to take a chance on at that in that stage of draft. So I think that if this offense can take a step forward and Miles Gaskin has the predicted workload he's going to in this offense, I mean, that could end up being a steal for people. Yeah, Gaskin is going right in the mid-20s at the running back position right now, RB24. So, and, and I mean, you nail it. The first, the guys, two guys right in front of him by ADP right now, Kareem Hunt and James Robinson, two guys we know yep. are going to be seeding a ton of touches in their backfield to Nick Chubb, obviously, and Travis Etienne, respectively. So, uh, 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 Miles Gaskin does look like the last true owner of a backfield who you can get in fantasy drafts this summer and coming at an incredibly affordable price. Uh, Bumping back out to the uh, pass catchers for a second. Mike Kosicki, someone who I feel like we've always wanted just that much more from, right? He's had some nice games. He's had some nice runs. We would like to see a little bit more from him, but with all these receiving options, does it feel as though maybe he's the odd man out in this passing game? I think this is a situation where Mike Kosicki could be a much more valuable NFL real life receiver than he is a fantasy receiver for that exact reason that you mentioned. Obviously, at 700 yards last year and tight ends, it's a wasteland. I mean, if you can get a guy who consistently can put up 700, 800 receiving yards, you could probably live with that week to week in the fantasy world. But this could be a scenario where that work, that usage takes a step back. Let's say he catches 45 balls instead of 53 balls this year because there are just so many more places that the football has to go. So it absolutely could be that way where you just say, oh, he's a nice little piece. He's a good ingredient for their offense, but his just raw production isn't where you need it to be. All right, Robert, you are going to be doing a ton of traveling this summer, and Miami is one of the camps that you are going to be visiting. So as you think about this team and you think about where this offense especially might stand, what's the one thing that you're going to be most interested in seeing when you do visit the Dolphins? 
I just want to see how Tua looks, how comfortable he looks. Again, how aggressive he's being. Is this a situation where they're really pushing the ball? Is the ball coming out on time? You can't see a ton from camp. You can't glean a ton from camp every single year. But that, to me, is the biggest thing. And also, how are guys talking about him? Whether it's the coaching staff, players around him, people that have been there every single day. Just the conversation around where he's at in his development. Because that's the last question for this team, right? They've done everything else. They've put the pieces around them. And they have built this thing in the right way. They have accumulated tons of resources. I think they've used those resources in smart ways for the most part. Now the quarterback has to do it. He, the quarterback is the final piece of this, and he has to develop in the way they hope he does. Because if he doesn't, then everything else might be for naught. And we saw it last year, a 10-win team. Brian Flores impressing people as the head coach, a very good defense. Those weapons around him, now it's all up to Tua. One last question before we let you get out of here. Our partners over at BetMGM have this team installed as a 9.5-win team on the over-under. A little bit of plus money if you're willing to bet them to go 10-7 and seven under a favorite at minus 120. Where do you see this team ending up this year, over or under that 9.5? Man, I, I hate I hate doing these because the numbers always right on. I mean, that's the reason right. that they. Yeah. That's the reason. Makers are good. That, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the reason that these things exist, and the reason that more and more sports books continue to start popping up. I. I'm gonna say under. I, yeah. I just think that until I see it with the offense, it's all a prediction. It's all mm-hmm. a projection. And I don't think the defense will be quite as good as it was last year. I mean, they were one of the best to pass defenses in the NFL. Uh, I think that their defensive talent is good. I, God, I don't know. I now I'm like talking myself into it because yeah. I think that they, I mean, adding Justin Coleman in free agency, I think that they have a decent amount of depth on the back end. I'm, I'm still going to say under just because again, until I, I got to see it to believe it when, when it comes to the offense. And so far I have not seen that. I don't, I have, questions and kind of apprehension about the two offensive coordinator situation. You know, Chan Gailey is not there anymore. They're going with George Kotze and Eric Studesville. When's the last time that worked out? It's almost like having two quarterbacks. So I still have enough hesitancy with the offense that I would go under. Yeah, this is, you're probably like the 16th or 17th one of these that I've done so far in running through our series here for the fantasy football pod. And this is one of the handful that I really haven't had a strong lean on because exactly what you said, the offense, as much as we like it on paper, it's still just a theory until Tua proves to us that he can take the next step. But theory or no, a very exciting team in the real world and definitely in the fantasy world as well. That's Robert Mays. Of course, you know him from the Athletic Football Show and all the great feature writing he does here at the Athletic. Robert, thanks for being with us on the Fantasy Football Podcast. No, I appreciate it. I'm happy to do it. We continue on our AFC East. Be right or check in on the Athletic Fantasy Football Podcast with the New York Jets and our Jets beat writer, Connor Hughes. Connor, thanks for being with us on the Fantasy Football Pod. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me on, man. Yeah, this is a team that's undergoing, obviously, a lot of change right at the top. Robert Sala taking over as the head coach, and he's got himself, of course, a new offensive coordinator in Mike LaFleur. Let's start there. Expectations for a Mike LaFleur-designed offense in New York. Uh, well, I can tell you expectations and what it's going to look like, you know, kind of two different, two different parts of that mm-hmm. question. Um, if you want to know what it's going to look like, go watch the 49ers film from the last couple of years under Kyle Shanahan, because that's who LaFleur has kind of cut his teeth from and trained underneath. In fact, when, when Sala brought him aboard, he said, no one knows that Kyle Shanahan scheme, uh, aside from Kyle, better than Kyle Shanahan, other than LaFleur. I mean, he's the guy who he's learned from it. He's mastered it. He knows it. And, and people I don't think understand or realize, I should say, how involved LaFleur was in the game planning in San Francisco. So the Jets are going to have basically a carbon copy of that, maybe with LaFleur's own little wrinkles, but it's going to be very, very similar to that. Now, expectations, the Jets offensively are a significantly better team than they've been the last two years. I mean, just look at the offensive line. You know, a couple years ago, it was arguably the worst in the NFL with uh, Ryan Khalil in the middle of it, you know, kind of where, where he wasn't even close to the player he used to be. Calvin Beecham breaking down, Brandon Shell and Chuma Adaga, Brian Winters was playing guard for a little bit. And after Brian Winters, you know, it was a combination of Alex Lewis and, and different guys like that. Now the Jets have a legitimate Pro Bowl potential guy there in Mekhi Beck in the left tackle. They've got a, a, per, a player that they invested a, a, a substantial first round pick in and Elijah Vera Tucker, Vera Tucker traded up to get him. Somebody that they believe after watching OTAs in minicamp 
has the chance to be an all-world type player. They got a pretty good center in Connor McGovern, who's now healthy. They got a competition uh, led by Greg Van Roden and right guard. And now they sign Morgan Moses. And because they signed Morgan Moses, they have George Fant, who can play left tackle, right tackle, big body guy, anyone like that who can check in as the extra offensive lineman. So they've got significantly more talent up front than they've had in quite some time, which I think is is significant. And as the, the playmakers are concerned, they've got more there, too. You know, Mike McCagnan went out there, and he, or Mike McCagnan, I'm sorry. Uh, Joe Douglas went out and fixed many of Mike McCagnan's problems by signing Corey Davis, who's a big-bodied player. He drafted Denzel Mims last year. He kept Jamison Crowder around. He drafted Elijah Moore. They brought in Keelan Cole, somebody that they're very high on. They've been trying to get to New York over the last two years via trade. It just never worked, so they signed him as a free agent. So they've got options at receiver. Braxton Berrios, another guy who's got talent at the slot. They have Chris Herndon, who they're hoping finds some kind of career revitalization. But if he doesn't, there's still Tyler Croft um, and uh, Tyler Croft there as a player. Ryan Griffin as well, who had caught five touchdowns two years ago before getting injured. So there are now players that, that for Zach Wilson to work with. There's an offensive line to protect him and, and obviously a lot of what the expectations come down to and, and how good this offense can be. It's just going to come down to what the Jets get under center from rookie quarterback Zach Wilson. Yeah, I've been asking everyone at some point during my check-ins, what are you most looking forward to when you get to camp? It's a pretty simple answer, I think, for you, for a few of our other beat writers on staff as well. Obviously, it's what they've got in rookie quarterback Zach Wilson. So what are you hoping to see? What are you thinking you're going to see from him in training camp? What are the Jets going to be asking out of him in this rookie season? Well, they're asking him to be the starter. I mean, that's that's pretty obvious. I mean, look, I've, I've covered the Jets in some capacity since 2014, so I've seen a lot of bad quarterback play, and I've seen a lot of bad quarterbacks come through here. And, and even more than that, I've seen a lot of rookies that the Jets thought might be the answer that, that ended up not being, whether it was Geno Smith or Bryce Petty or Christian Hackenberg or, or all the way to Sam Darnold and even guys that were lower level like Jake Heaps, who never was thought to be the answer, but was another rookie that was in here. You know, I've seen these guys – Come in and out, and and the one thing that I've never seen, though, is one of those rookie quarterbacks, even Sam, uh, from the very, very beginning, be the number one quarterback. I mean, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. Zach Wilson is this team's quarterback one. Zach Wilson is this team's starting quarterback, and I know that because he has literally taken every single first-team rep from the very first rep of rookie minicamp through OTAs through minicamp, and it's going to be the case come training camp. In fact, the Jets haven't even really signed anyone to push him because behind him, they've got James Morgan, a player they drafted last year is kind of just a developmental project. And then Mike White, who obviously is not in anybody's consideration to be a, a franchise quarterback or a week one starting quarterback. So I think the one thing I've been most impressed with and was most impressed with throughout this offseason is that, you know, Zach had really, really good days. He had days that were not so good. But more than anything, there was never a practice this offseason where he didn't look like he belonged. You know, it wasn't it wasn't always peaches and cream. Like I said, it wasn't always perfect, but he never looked bad. He never looked out of place. There were never those ugly rookie mistakes that you see so often, whether, you know, the quarterback throws left and the receiver runs right because the quarterback didn't remember the play or, or the forced ball into triple coverage or you know, when things start to go bad, they really start to spiral and two interceptions turned into four, five, six, and it just gets ugly. I mean, I remember going back and, and recently looking at back at what Sam Darnold did his first uh, OTA practice. He went two eleven. He went two of eleven with like two dropped interceptions and one real pick. You know that that was never prevalent with Zach Wilson. What you had with Zach Wilson was a guy that didn't necessarily always look great, but always looked like he could play. And and every day got a little bit better. Every practice showed something, whether it was a gorgeous pass down the left sideline to Elijah Moore, a perfectly placed swing route to Michael Carter, a, a great ball, a back shoulder pass to Keelan Cole in his first OTA practice in seven-on-seven drills. I mean, he always did something. So for me, come training camp, I think it's just about taking that next step. And I don't mean looking like a Pro Bowl quarterback. I don't mean looking like an all-pro quarterback. I don't mean looking like people are going to forget all about Josh Allen up there in Buffalo and name Zach Wilson the top player in the AFC East. What I mean is that he does what he did in OTAs and minicamp in training camp practices that have live live contact, in training camp practices where the pads come on, where he's really seeing a true pass rush. Continue to take that next step. Continue to take those baby steps, stack days, and just keep looking like you belong. Because if the Jets get that from him, they will be in a much better position to succeed than they ever were under Sam Darnold because unlike the case when Sam Darnold was this team's quarterback, the Jets have a competent offensive line in front of them, somebody that can keep them upright, and they have some weapons to throw to where Zach, unlike Sam, won't have to do it all himself. 
Yeah, let's get to those weapons. It's, I mean, this is a new-look team just top to bottom on the offense. Talk about it so much. It's it's remarkable, really, the turnover. And at the wide receiver group, I mean, you ran through all of them. You got Corey Davis in here from Tennessee. Uh, you still have the holdovers in Denzel Mims and Jamison Crowder, second-round pick Elijah Moore, Keelan Cole. Now in this group, I mean, those are five guys who could all be contributors. Great for the Jets in real life. Maybe a little bit of a headache for us in the fantasy football world. How do you see this wide receiver group shaking out? Well, that's the thing is, is it's going to be tough for anyone that, that wants to kind of look at this from a fantasy perspective because LaFleur is going to use all the weapons at his disposal. You know, he's not focused on fantasy catches. He's not focused on fantasy yards or fantasy touchdowns. That's not his focus. He wants to win football games and build an effective offense, something that the Jets haven't had absent the 2015 season with Fitz and Marshall and Decker in quite some time. And that means that, that Jamison Crowder is going to get his touches and Denzel Mims is going to get his touches in his situations. And so is Elijah Moore. And so is Keelan Cole. And so is Braxton Berrios. And so is everyone else, Corey Davis, everyone else that's in here. They're all going to see their time. I think when this thing shakes out, you're going to have Keelan Cole and Corey Davis as your two outside wide receivers. And then Jamison Crowder and Elijah Moore mixing up time in the slot. But everyone is going to be used. I think if there's a player, though, that has more upside than anyone else and a player that is that is more exciting than anyone else, it's the rookie in Elijah Moore. Now, I don't know if he's going to have, you know, a, a, a Jefferson-type rookie year or an Odell Beckham-type rookie year. I don't know if we're in store for that necessarily. I think that might be a bit premature considering the number of other receivers the Jets have, but also the fact that they got a rookie quarterback and things like that. But throughout OTA's minicamp, there was no more impressive player on either side of the ball, offense, defense, special teams, rookie, veteran, scout team guy, didn't matter. No one was as impressive as Elijah Moore. That that kid did everything, whether it was explosiveness after the catch, whether it was his actual catching with his hands, whether it was the route running, the ability to go short and or go deep, the ability to take a short route deep. He was the most impressive player and the guy that absolutely stood out the most. So the Jets are going to use their rotation. They're going to get everyone everyone moving, but... When I left the final practice of minicamp, I remember saying to myself, you know, if if Moore does in training camp what he just did in OTAs and minicamp, the Jets are not going to be able to keep him off the field. He looked that dynamic. Yeah, even with all those mouths to feed, someone who we are already getting excited about in the fantasy world and someone else who we're getting excited about, another new face, another rookie, it's Michael Carter. He's going to be the first Jet off the board in pretty much every single fantasy draft. We know Tevin Coleman's here. We know LaMichael P. Ryan is still here, but fantasy managers are treating this as though it's Michael Carter's backfield to the extent that he just leads the team in touches among running backs. Do you think we're reading that correctly a couple months out from the start of the season? Uh, I wouldn't go that far, um, simply because, I mean, if you know anything about a San Francisco backfield, they, mm -hmm. they're going to rotate and they're going to use all of their guys. So this isn't, I don't think this is a, a, a lead back type backfield. I don't think this is a, you know, he's going to get all the touches. You're going to see Tevin Coleman come in on third down, and maybe then you'll see Ty Johnson check in on certain situations to give everyone a break. Now, I, I think the Jets are going to use, at least from what I've seen right now, they're going to use a full rotation. You're going to see Tevin Coleman as much as you see Michael Carter, as much as you see Ty Johnson, and don't be surprised to see Josh Adams work in there as well. And, and Michael P. Ryan, too. You know, don't, don't forget about him, a player they drafted in the fourth round last year. They're going to have a running back by committee. That's what Adam Gase actually wanted to build for two years before Mike McCagnan signed Le'Veon Bell, and that's what now Joe Douglas has built with Le'Veon Bell gone. I mean, the Jets have four running backs that they like a lot, a fifth if you want to rotate in. Josh Adams, who has a skill set that, that LaFleur will like, and they're going to use them all. So, uh, I don't know if I would I would say that necessarily. I don't know if I'd say he's going to be the lead back or hit or you know he's going to be the go to guy or he's going to be the number one. I mean I think Carter has some of the most talent and Carter has uh, one of the more well rounded skill sets because of what he can do as a receiver in addition to running the ball. But it's not just him. I mean the Jets are going to do what the 49ers did when they had Tevin Coleman and Mostert and they had Breida when they ran to the Super Bowl in 2019. I mean you look at that all. I think all if I'm not mistaken. All three of those guys had over 600 rushing yards, and as a t as a trio, they combined for like 1,519 touchdowns, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so that, that that's kind of what the Jets are going to look to build here. You're going to see Carter, but you're also going to see Coleman. You're also going to see Johnson. And, and when you have a backfield like that, I don't know if you necessarily want to value uh, one guy so significantly over another. 
All right, Connor, we got one more question here before we let you go. Our partners over at BetMGM have installed the Jets with a win total over-under of 6, minus 110 on both sides. One of the few teams that BetMGM has uh, just even minus 110 for both the over and the under. What do you think? Seven wins possible for this team? I think it's possible. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, again, it's, we talked about this, man. It's, it's going to come down to two things. It's going to come down to can they stay healthy? Because the one issue that they had when Mike McCagney was this team's GM was that they were borderline inept in the NFL draft. And when you whiff on so many picks in 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018, and 2019, because while the Jets did hire Joe Douglas in 2019, it was after Mike McCagney ran the uh, NFL draft and free agency. So that was basically five full years, right? So what was that, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. So that was mm-hmm. five full years of ineptitude in, in talent evaluation and talent acquisition you're not going to erase that in two off seasons, you know, because Joe Douglas has only had the 2020 draft in free agency and the 2021 draft in free agency. It's going to take a lot more time to both build talent and build depth. And that's the key one because the Jets starting five offensive line right now, we were talking about Beckton, Beckton, Vera Tucker, McGovern, uh, Van Roten and Moses. That looks really good. But if Vera Tucker goes down, or Vera Tucker and Moses go down, or Becton deals with injuries like he dealt with all throughout his rookie year. Yeah, you have Fant who can check in, but then what happens at guard? You know, you this team is not very deep, absent maybe one or two positions. And they have legitimate concerns in the secondary where their corners are big question marks in Hall, Bless Austin, and then potentially Gat Javelin Gidry or the other Michael Carter in the nickel spot. So there, there's a lot of concerns. There's a lot of questions. There, there's a lot of issues there. If the Jets can stay healthy and avoid those major big injuries, and Zach Wilson is solid, I'm not talking about what they got, what uh, the Chargers got out of Justin mm-hmm. Herbert, but if he's somewhere in the middle ground because between Tua and Herbert and he finds like that middle ground or he looks a little bit like Joe Burrow did with the the Bengals did last year, flash, you know, struggling some but still flashing some. If Zach Wilson can give them that, the Jets can absolutely win seven games, maybe eight games. But if Zach Wilson is closer to Tua than he is to Burrow or Herbert and and this team suffers a couple injuries on the offensive line and maybe Corey Davis goes down and they lose Jamison Crowder and Elijah Moore suddenly is forced to be the number one with no one opposite him so teams can double him, I think the Jets could struggle and win five or four four or five games. So this is a very tough thing to predict, but I'll I'll breed for the sake of this being – you know, the middle of July, <laughs> uh, I'll breed more or uh, hedge on the side of optimism and think Zach Wilson's not going to be, you know, Zach Wilson's going to be around average or pretty good mm-hmm. for a rookie quarterback and everyone stays relatively healthy. I'll say, yeah, this this team can probably win seven games. Rookie quarterback, a new head coach, an offensive coordinator, all those options as among the pass catchers, all those options in the backfield. It could be a headache season again from the Jets in the fantasy world, but at least a fun and intriguing headache, not just a straight-up bad headache like they've been in recent seasons. Connor Hughes has got you covered all season long on the Jets here at The Athletic and the Can't Wait podcast. Be sure to check them out as well. Connor, thanks for being with us here on the Fantasy Football Pod. No problem. Thank you so much for having me on, man. Continuing along here on the Athletic Fantasy Football Podcast, rolling through the AFC East. Next team up is the New England Patriots. To talk Patriots, we bring on our NFL Managing Editor, Sean Leahy. Sean, what's going on? Thanks for being with us here on the Fantasy Football Pod. Yeah, happy to be here. Uh, Let's go right to the top with this team. Quarterback, obviously, last year it was Cam Newton being brought in as the new guy. He's still there. This year it is the 15th overall pick. In the draft, Mac Jones being brought in as the new guy. How open of a competition do you think this is in training camp? And assuming Cam does have the leg up, what does Mac Jones need to do to ultimately be a starter for this team this season? I think it's wide open. Um, but I think Cam Newton, like you say, has has the advantage going in. Um, he played a season in the Patriots uh, system last year. This year, he has the benefit of the entire offseason. He's been working right, with right. Josh McDaniels and Bill Belichick, and he was there for mini camps and uh, for the mini camp and OTAs. You know, last year he signed on June 30th or July 1st, somewhere around that. He missed the entire you know offseason program. What what there was of it during 2020. Um, so that's an advantage. Uh, what we don't know about Cam Newton is, does that make him any better of a quarterback? Can he be more accurate? You know, because um, that was a problem last year. Um, now, Mac Jones is, you know, like you said, they drafted him 15th overall. Um, there's a lot of things to like about his game, um, but he hasn't done any of this before. He's a rookie. Uh, Bill Belichick typically eats rookie quarterbacks up with his defense. Um, now he's got a rookie quarterback, which 
you know, we, we just don't have any, uh, you know, history with uh, with Bill Belichick in New England. He hasn't really had to play rookie quarterbacks before. Um, the quarterback position has for so long been stable for him. So there's a lot of unknowns. What does Mac Jones have to do to win the job? Um, he cannot th- turn the ball over in training camp. He has to um, beat out Cam Newton fast. Uh, last year during training camp, it was a compressed training camp, but Jarrett Stidham, who's still in camp now, by the way, but he, you know, uh, he, he he lost it real quick because he wasn't accurate, and then he got hurt, and while he was hurt, Cam Newton just sailed right by him in the quarterback competition. So Mac Jones, one, needs to stay healthy. Two, he can't throw it, turn the ball over and throw interceptions, uh, you know, when they're having this quarterback competition. Um, and if he can do those two things, and, and uh, that's going to give him more of a chance uh, to be the starter. But, you know, if I had to guess right now, I'd tell you that Cam Newton's going to be the starter in week one. All right. Cam Newton unquestionably had some things working against him last season. As you said, didn't sign till late June, early July, then dealt with the thing uh, that everyone dealt with, with not really having a real training camp and having to do that with a new team, a new coaching staff, a new system, all of that. He missed a game because of COVID, and it was something that he said uh, lingered a little bit, and he played through it, but he just wasn't quite himself those first few games after coming back from the game that he did miss. At the same time, it was a pretty ugly season for him throwing the ball. 2,657 yards, eight touchdowns against 10 interceptions. Uh, How does he get back to throwing the ball at least a little bit more effectively that will let him take full advantage of what he can still do as he showed us last year as a runner? I mean, it all starts and stops with can he cut down on those interceptions, you know, Uh, and and can he throw the ball downfield and can he be accurate? Um, You know, the Patriots just, there were a lot of times last year it did not look like they could throw the ball at all. Uh, he's got better receiving options this year. That was a problem. Let's not discount that. They signed Hunter Henry. They signed uh, Jonu Smith. Um, they acquired Nelson Aguilar and Kendrick Bourne. Um, you know, that's that's a much better, you know, crop of pass catchers than he had last year. Um, but he still has to get the ball to them and he, you know, has to put it in places that they can catch and he can't be, can't be turning the ball over. Um, the Patriots have to play with a lot more confidence um, because, you know, the thing is, they've got a really good defense. I mean, they, this could be a top defense, across, you know, among the NFL. Um, so, you know, if you get consistent quarterback play, this team can contend real fast. Let's talk about those pass catchers, and let's start out at the wide receiver position. You said it. They go out. They get Nelson Aguilar. They get Kendrick Bourne. Jacoby Myers is still here, and Jacoby Myers is a guy who feels new-ish in that he didn't really get an opportunity to play a lot for the Patriots last season until about halfway through the year. So you're looking at those guys as your top three receivers. How do you think we should expect the target share to shake out among those three guys specifically? Um, I mean, I, I think uh, to me, it's more about the tight ends, you know, I mean, I think they are probably going to be more dependable as pass catchers. Um, you know, they, they might be, you know, featured in the offense even a little bit more Hunter Henry and John Smith. Um, you know, I, but those wide receivers that you mentioned, look, they paid a lot of money to, to Aguilar and, and they acquired Bourne and, but, but. You know, nobody there is like rock solid number one guy. Like this guy is can't miss. You know, so they still got question marks there. Like, you know, you we even though they gave Aguilar a lot of money, you still like, all right, can he come here? Can he stay healthy? Can he do what they need him to do? Um, you know, so I, I just I have some question marks with the with the receiving core. Like we said a couple of minutes ago, they're better than last year, but you know. If Tom Brady's still the quarterback of this team, you know, let's say, okay, they can make something work with this. If um, if Cam Newton and and Mac Jones are the other quarterbacks like they are the, right now, man, the, these quarterbacks, you, uh, these receivers are big question marks, you know, and, and it just, I just keep, I'm rambling here, but I just keep coming back to Hunter Henry and John o. Smith are, are better options than any of those receivers right now. All right, well, let's look at those tight ends then. Uh, these are two very good tight ends. And, you know, I'm just going to st- speak from a fantasy perspective. If it was just one of those guys in New England, I think we'd be firing that person up as a no doubt about it top 10 tight end in the league as far as fantasy production goes. But obviously having both of them there, Johnny Smith's going to eat into what Hunter Henry does from a pure production standpoint. Hunter Henry's going to eat into what Johnny Smith does. We know this team in the past has had a lot of success with two tight end sets. 
Is that something we should expect to see from them again this year? I think so. You know, the two tight ends, they've they've done that a lot before. You know, you go back a decade when Rob Gronkowski and Aaron Hernandez were there. It worked really well. Um, You could see that continue when Rob Gronkowski and Martellus Bennett were there in 2016. Right. Um, You know, so they know they they have the bones for that offense here. and, And I think, you know. That and the the dollars that they piled up on the table are probably why they were able to get two big name free agent tight ends to sign with them at the same time. Um, but uh, you know, it, it, like you mentioned there, if, you, if you're a fantasy player, which direction do you, do you go in? That's that's hard for me to say right now. I mean, both of those guys are going to you know get opportunities, but you know we'll, we'll have to see which one becomes a, a, you know a more reliable fantasy option. Yeah, it's going to be hard, I think, to trust either one of them in the fantasy world just because the other one is also very good and a very effective player. And so it wouldn't be a surprise to see Janu have a big game this week, Hunter Henry have a big game the next week, and back to Janu for two weeks. And it's going to be a lot of headaches if you are invested, I think, in either of these New England tight ends. Great problem for the Patriots. A little bit of a pain for us in the fantasy world. Jumping into the backfield, we want to believe it's as simple as Damian Harris is the primary runner, James White just going to do his James White thing, catching the ball out of the backfield. Sony Michelle, however, still on this roster. Team used a fourth-round pick on Ramondre Stevenson as well. Are we reading it correctly, though? Are we going to get that wish that we're hoping for in the fantasy world where Damian Harris handles the bulk of the carries, James White does his thing as a receiver, and everyone else just sort of mixes in in a Patriot sort of way? I would be surprised if it works out that cleanly. It rarely does for the Patriots. Um, you know, I you know it, it, it's this is not a team that has uh, you know a, a fifteen hundred yard runner that you can count on and some a horse that you can just ride. Right. Um, what they like to do is they like to mix it up and and it's you know dependent on the uh, you know on the, the the game plan each week and some weeks it's going to be Harris and some weeks it's going to be Michael and you know hope, hopefully for them they're hoping that you know Ramondre Stevenson mixes into that you'll see James White as part of it. Um, I think James White probably wants to be catching more passes this year and have a better relationship with the quarterback, whoever it is that he did last year. But I think, you know, the the Patriots are usually, you know, a team that that goes week to week, and I would expect that's going to continue. All right. Finally here, Sean, our partners at BetMGM have placed a win total over under on the Patriots of nine and a half. The over is a little bit of an underdog at plus 105, under coming in at minus 125. Forgetting the odds and just looking at that number, nine and a half is asking a little bit from a team that, you know, frankly, didn't really have much offensive juice last season. Getting to 10, even with the 17th game, uh, no longer the big bully in the division with what the Bills have been able to do the last couple of seasons. Where are you at on this team? They go over that nine and a half or under? I think, it. you know, if you if you can tell me how the quarterback is going to play, I can answer that question better. I think they have a defense that's a 10-win team, you know, for a 10-win team. I, you know, they have offensive parts other than the quarterback that are reflective of a team that can win 10 games and go to the playoffs. Do they have the quarterback who can lead them there and who can avoid making mistakes? You know, if I, you know, if I had to guess right now, I'd go with the under on that. But, you know, if if the quarterback position stabilizes and, and isn't a problem for them, then I think they go over that. But right now I'm saying under. So it was a fantasy black hole a season ago, but with some of the improving weapons around the quarterback position and maybe some stabilization from the quarterback position itself, it can be a, a little bit more fruitful of a fantasy team for us this season. That's Sean Leahy, managing editor of NFL here at The Athletic. Sean, thanks again for being with us on the Fantasy Football Podcast. Sure thing. That's it for the AFC East edition of the Athletic Fantasy Football Podcast. Beat writer roundtable, our thanks to Tim Graham, Robert Mays, Connor Hughes, and Sean Leahy for being here with us. We'll be back with you soon on the Athletic Fantasy Football Podcast. Talk to you then. Talk to you then.